Global Voices on Taiwan. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Global Voices on Taiwan. I'm your host again, Rath Wang. I'm a news producer and anchor. We have Eating covering for Vincent today. Hello, everyone. I'm Eating from the Lie Campaign and also a graduate student at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Um, we will explore how the latest news event um, from near and afar impact Taiwan and how this island nation shakes the globe. We hope this podcast can be your window to Taiwan's global perspectives. Our special guest is Ian Chong. Ian is an expert in ASEAN, Taiwan, U.S. and China dynamics and is a political science professor at the National University of Singapore. He's written many analyses, including The Many One Chinas, Multiple Approaches to Taiwan and China, and he's a frequent speaker on CNN, the BBC, NBC, CNA of Singapore, and many, many more. And he is one of our many global experts, journalists, and policymakers on the podcast. Ian, being in Singapore, why is Taiwan so important to Southeast Asia? And how do you see ties between Taiwan and ASEAN growing? Thanks for having me on. Uh, I add also that I'm a non-resident scholar at Carnegie China, under which the article you mentioned, Many One Chinas, was actually written and published. With Southeast Asia, it's actually quite interesting because I think Taiwan, it, Taiwan's importance underappreciated. Uh, on the one hand, we see Taiwan uh, being a major trading partner, being a major investor in the region. It's you know usually within well within the top ten. Uh, in Singapore's case, I think it alternates between South Korea and Taiwan between you know, five and six, so just below actually the PRC. Um, so there's the economic importance. Taiwan, of course, as everyone well knows, is very much integrated into the supply chain um, of the region. So a lot of um, uh, components from Taiwan come to Southeast Asia. They get assembled and maybe sometimes uh, sent on to the PRC for you know um, uh, finishing into final products that will then be exported elsewhere. So Taiwan is very much part of um, our economic lives. Um, for places where you know, that are more dependent on maritime trade, um, especially with Northeast Asia. Um, a lot of the sea lanes will pass around Taiwan. A lot of the uh, air routes will pass around Taiwan. And importantly, um, the, our very ability to have this podcast uh, with, um, with me being in Singapore, and I guess you, uh, you guys are in Taiwan, um, you know, that rests on submarine cables that also traverse uh, the South China Sea going around Taiwan um, and into the East China Sea and then across the Pacific. So Taiwan is a key node in a lot of, a lot of the sort of daily life, but its importance is not really highlighted, not really understood part of the reason being that um, governments um, and to uh, some degree uh, populations, uh, news organizations would prefer not to talk about Taiwan given concerns that this could invite the ire of Beijing. Taiwan's clearly important. Um, I'd also add a few more links that uh, I, th I personally think are interesting. If you think about the, Ab the Aboriginal groups uh, in Taiwan, um, the languages that, that they speak, they belong to the same Austronesian family as um, the Malay languages, which are widely spoken in Southeast Asia, Bahasa Indonesia, Javanese, Bahasa Malaysia, Tagalog. 
So they're all sort of related languages because of the way that migration uh, worked historically. Um, and also for uh, places where there are ethnic Chinese communities. Um, historically, uh, many of the ethnic Chinese communities in Southeast Asia come from the same places as the ethnic Chinese who migrated to Taiwan. So uh, places in what is today uh, Southeastern China, notably uh, Fujian and, and uh, Northern Guangdong, many um, Southeast A uh, ethnic Chinese in Southeast Asia, their families would see ancestry from places like Zhangzhou, Quanzhou, um, who also um, are the origins for uh, some of the people who moved over to Taiwan. I'm a Hakka myself, so I can completely relate to that. That's fascinating. You've been writing extensively about PRC coercive efforts on Taiwan and its influenced campaign in Southeast Asia. What exactly is that? And what, how can Taiwan do the best um, do to best protect its um, de democracy while maintaining peace in the entire region? So the PRC, um, as they have become more capable, both economically and in terms of their ability to use force, they've that's also dovetailed with this um, increasing eagerness to pursue uh, their claims uh, with more vigor. So there is pressure, obviously, on Taiwan, given Beijing's desire to exert control over Taiwan and its population. That comes in the form of economic punishment sometimes. So the suspension of group tours to, to Taiwan some years back that was one example. Limits on uh, exports of Taiwan uh, fruits and vegetables, that's, that's another. Uh, so that sort of economic coercion, I mean, I, I generally study um, coercion, right? So uh, Taiwan is a case of where you see quite a bit of PRC coercion, um, but it's not limited to Taiwan. If you look at this, this sort of arc from really from Northeast Asia through Southeast Asia, um, you see a fair amount of PRC coercive activity that comes in different flavors. Uh, there's the economic side. We see the pressure put on South Korea over their deployment of THAAD. So this included the, um, you know, so much pressure on Lotte, their, um, their the sort of food uh, conglomerate, that they had to withdraw all their uh, storefronts uh, in inside the PRC. Um, we've seen pressure on on uh, Japan towards Southeast Asia. There was um, the suspension of the purchase of Philippine bananas for a while, and um, a lot of this also comes with the sort of more, I suppose, uh, physical uh, elements of coercion. So uh, there's a lot of talk today, of course, about uh, PRC military aircraft and ships uh, going near Taiwan, um, increasing in number and also sophistication in their operations. Well, we see this in the Yellow Sea, um, in the East China Sea, around the Diaoyu, Senkaku uh, Islands, which uh, are disputed with Japan, parts of the Yellow Sea um, with South Korea. And of course, very recently, we see very active PRC efforts to use their much larger Coast Guard vessels to prevent the Philippines from resupplying. Second Thomas Shoal, this, um, this uh, essentially maritime feature that the Philippines had beached one of their really old landing craft on so that they can have a, maintain a presence on. There is constant friction between the PRC and uh, uh, Malaysia and Vietnam in areas of the South China Sea that they all, that they both, that each of these parties claim. Uh, so there's this sort of general um, effort to use pressure um, along with other economic enticements to get states to give in to PRC demands. I would also say that this is not limited 
to uh, to Southeast Asia, Taiwan, or Northeast Asia. You see pressure being put on Australia, uh, a suspension of some of the trade there for their call to investigate the origins of COVID. You see pressure being put on Lithuania for trying to uh, deepen their ties with uh, with Taiwan. So this is um, what we're seeing with Taiwan is part of this larger global phenomenon. It's not just Taiwan um, alone, although I think many people uh, like to sort of isolate uh, these sorts of uh, incidents because maybe it's easier to understand the, the specifics and maybe politically it's uh, easier to sell. But I think there's a much broader linkage. Speaking of PRC demands and pressure, um, as you said, Taiwan is in the spotlight, but it's not limited to Taiwan. Um, we came across something that really caught our eye was your recent paper on the many one China's. How does China use this um, as different countries have different one China policies to kind of force Taiwan or pressure, put pressure on Taiwan when actually most countries around the world do not abide by China's version of the one China principle as countries have their own one China policy? That bit is less directly uh, coercive, but more the PRC trying to change the narrative around Taiwan um, in order to create a sense of greater acceptance, right, uh, internationally that Taiwan is supposed to be uh, part of the, the PRC, even though they do not actually run uh, governance uh, on Taiwan. And so what that effort means is to create an impression that there is a lot of agreement, that there is a lot of consensus around uh, this idea of the One China Principle. This is something that China puts out. In fact, there's a really great uh, paper by the diplomat, by a friend of mine from Academia Seneca, Wu Jianhui, and some of his co-authors that talk about uh, this effort in more detail. Uh, so essentially, the effort, what we see Beijing try to do is to say that it's One China Principle, which is that um, there's only one China in the world. Taiwan is part of China, and uh, China is uh, represented uh, by the People's Republic of China, right? So essentially it's a fusing of three things together, Taiwan, China, and uh, and the PRC. And the PRC of course is run by the Chinese Communist Party. Now, this is something that the PRC had been consistently trying to push um, other countries to accept. And this was especially the case when um, Beijing tried to establish formal official diplomatic relations with various countries. But uh, various countries have uh, differing positions on their relationship with the PRC. They don't necessarily agree with the PRC on the need to sort of get themselves involved in what they see to be a something that's at the at Beijing's insistence. So uh, the way that historically this difference has been fudged is to talk about a one China policy that um, many states adopt. And the one China policies for different states uh, look very, very different. Some, maybe about 51, because of their negotiations with Beijing, take on Beijing's version. But lots of other countries have a whole variety of things uh, that will take note of Beijing's position or acknowledge Beijing's position um, or sometimes not mention Beijing's position at all. So just to give you a flavor, the U.S. one China policy acknowledges that Chinese on both sides uh, of the strait, this is the Taiwan Strait, maintain that there is one China and the U.S. does not challenge that position. So uh, what that means, uh, that those terms are quite key because acknowledge means to say that the U.S. knows that Chinese on both sides of the strait say that there is this one China thing. Um, they, they don't 
uh, agree or disagree. They just say that, okay, we know that this position exists. And if you know from the uh, US original, original US position that sort of um, Chinese on both sides of the straight language, that is reflective of the time in which the US one China policy was first formulated. So this would be at the early 70s when uh, the KMT, when martial law was still uh, happening in Taiwan, where the KMT um, and, uh, was in charge and Chiang Kai-shek was still alive. And for that regime, they insisted too that there was this one China which they were the legitimate representatives and government of. Uh, so that language has stayed. Uh, but of course, I suppose it is possible to, to debate uh, the, you know, what happens when identities uh, change, uh, if that uh, affects uh, things at all. But that's sort of looking forward a, a bit and gets a bit speculative. Uh, just to give you a, a few more examples, if you look at say, I think the Canadian position is that they take note of the Chinese position that there is one China. Um, if you look at the what I call sort of the German formulation, which is quite similar to the Singapore formulation, you have to actually follow the language a little bit carefully. So um, it says that they recognize that there's one China um, uh, in the world and Taiwan is uh, part of China. And then the next sentence will say something like they recognize the People's Republic of China. There's not that same link in the one China principle that equates China to necessarily the PRC. So there are various permutations uh, of this, uh, which I think gives essentially gives different states uh, some leeway to manage their ties with both uh, Beijing and uh, Taipei. And within the one China policies that different states have, they can have very they have unofficial but um, you know. Uh, relations with uh, Taiwan at uh, varying degrees of substance. So that's essentially the one China policies policies in the plural versus the one China principle. I'll also note that uh, in terms of trying to shift the perception of Taiwan being uh, accepted as uh, internationally as being part of the PRC, there is also some move to uh, push an interpretation of the United Nations General Assembly Resolution 2758. This was from 1971, when the PRC replaced the then ROC government's uh, representatives at the United Nations. Now, that language, um, basically, you can look it up. It's, it's all, it's, this is all publicly available. You can look it up. It says that the UN will restore the seats to the People's Republic of China and will eject the representatives of Chiang Kai-shek. It does not mention Taiwan in the text at all. Um, but Beijing today tends to claim that Resolution 2758 um, means to say that there's recognition that Taiwan is uh, part of uh, the PRC. There is uh, That's just not in the text. So it what all these point to is this ongoing uh, effort to shift uh, perceptions and understandings to strengthen Beijing's position and its claims over Taiwan and to get more international support for that kind of a position. Having said that, Ian, how do you think Taiwan should best resist such efforts and given Beijing's narrative and in convincing the world that Taiwan is a part of the PRC? Well, I think Taiwan being able to act autonomously um, in way, and make decisions for its own and make those decisions clear uh, is very important. So the fact that you're having uh, the presidential and legislative UN elections at, at the end of the year and moving through your own process, that's important to be able to insist on Taiwan's own legal identity um, in international fora. Uh, that will, that's, that's also important. Um, although that does not 
at the same time necessarily have to con uh, connote uh, statehood. So um, there are, I guess the PRC claim would be that, oh, Hong Kong has a separate legal uh, identity. Uh, but beyond that, I think it's also useful to, to sort of convey that, you know, there are different one China policies out there in the world. Um, and that uh, sh may shape the way that uh, Taiwan interacts with various governments, uh, but that th those policies are not the same as the one China principle. I think, at least on the substance, there can be a constant and consistent reminder to officials um, and perhaps media that, hey, you know, when we when you work with Taiwan, uh, you have to recognize the fact that even in your policies, um, Taiwan has this separateness, right? has this distinctiveness that uh, should, and it should not be treated as if it were just the PRC. We understand that a core part of your current research is on post-authoritarianism politics and their ties with major security partners. We, um, Taiwan can also closely relate to that, um, obviously, as the country transitioned from a military dictatorship several decades ago. I'm wondering how you would compare Taiwan's experience to Southeast Asia and what needs to be put in place to safeguard decades of hard-won freedoms. So the situation in Taiwan is going to be a bit different from a lot of Southeast Asia. There have been uh, Southeast Asian uh, states that have transition quite successfully away from um, authoritarian rule, uh, Indonesia being uh, one prominent example. I guess you can make a case uh, for the Philippines as well. But um, I think for others, they're either still in the midst of transition or uh, they still are sort of more ensconced in uh, having authoritarian regimes. So in this regard, how Taiwan relates to these different entities um, I think uh, needs a little bit of care. So working with other democracies, other states that you know recognize democracy as a good, um, I think there an emphasis on the sort of common political uh, values would be a useful thing to do. Talking about uh, shared concern for things like um, for, uh, human rights, um, uh, including political and civil rights, will be important. However, migrant workers working on Taiwan uh, own and operated fishing vessels. That is a sore point. Now, for states that are not democratic and, more, and are more authoritarian, uh, then this talk about democracy can actually seem threatening. So the focus there should perhaps be more about having a concern over environmental issues, uh, perhaps labor issues, such that Taiwan is seen to be a partner and uh, employer of choice, right? Uh, and that would create, I think, a lot of uh, not just goodwill, but sort of substantive reason to actually work with Taiwan um, and, and Taiwan firms. Thank you so much, Ian. That's fascinating. And thank you all for joining us on Global Voices on Taiwan. To ensure you don't miss out on exciting insights from this island nation's captivating stories, make sure to subscribe on your preferred podcast and social media platform. Also check our full video on YouTube. Take care and see you soon.